Hello and bienvenido San Antonio. Welcome to the Alamo Hour, discussing the people, places, and passion that make our city. My name is Justin Hill, a local attorney, a proud San Antonian, and keeper of chickens and bees. On the Alamo Hour, you'll get to hear from the people that make San Antonio great and unique and the best kept secret in Texas. We're glad that you're here. All right, welcome to the Alamo Hour. Today's guest is Molly Keck. Molly is an integrated pest management program specialist with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. Did I get that right? Did, yes okay. you did. Uh, She has a master's in entomology. You and I were at A&M at the same time. I'm 04, but then I went to law school and you stuck around and got your master's in entomology. I did. Uh, she's a professor, adjunct professor. She teaches adult education courses writes, presents on a wide variety of topics. I saw you do a YouTube video on murder hornets. Um, you taught the beekeeping class that I took at the San Antonio Botanical Garden. So I wanted to get you on and talk about something that has consistently been one of the most common questions I get since people found out that I keep bees is a bunch of questions about that. So I wanted to have you on to talk about it. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thank you. We've had, you know, we had somebody on last week talking about real in-depth media issues about San Antonio's return to work, $150 million initiative. This is going to be a much more fun discussion, I think. Good, good. Okay, so I always start it with just some general background information. Um, you know, when and why did you end up in San Antonio? Um, I never left San Antonio. I was born here. I'm a San Antonio native. I went to Boone Elementary, Rudder Middle School, and Clark High School. And uh, my husband is from San Antonio also. His parents are from San Antonio. So uh, my kids are a third generation San Antonian, probably actually more than that, because actually my husband's grandparents were from San Antonio as well. And I'm pretty sure his great grandparents. So we always joke that we don't know where we came from. We're just Texan. Um, so I went off to A&M. That was the only time I left San Antonio. And then um, because my family and life is here, this is the best place to live. So we moved back home. Okay. I've had a lot of people on the show and most people are kind of like me. I moved here, you know, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, a lot of people moving in. There are a lot of people moving in. There's, there's a, but, but also if I look at the majority of the people that I went to high school with, maybe 15% left San Antonio and the rest of us came back home. It's, it's when you're born here and you're from here, you don't really want to leave here. And it's great. And it's a great cost of living and people are nice and it's a great kind of secret, you know, place in Texas, I think. It is. It's also a really, really good family town, I think. And it's also, um, you get the small town feel in a big city. It's like everybody kind of knows everybody or it's the Kevin Bacon thing. Like you can, eventually you'll figure out a way that you, if you meet a stranger, you have some ties somehow. So when our, when we did our beekeeping class, we did field day. I think that was at your house. It was, yeah. So you're kind of in the north side of, of San Antonio. You also have chickens. Do you keep any other animals? Um, just pets. Uh, we, the only livestock we have really are chicken and bees. And then other than that, dogs, cats, and uh, a parrot. And yeah, dogs, cats, and a parrot. Okay. How many dogs? We have three dogs. We have two cats and we have one parrot. My dad is a vet. So like, uh, okay. I've never not had a house full of animals. It would be very unusual not to hear animals everywhere. I'm going to butcher all of the words wrong today. I'm going to say bugs instead of insects, I'm sure. But is he a general vet or is he a livestock vet? He's a small animal vet. Um, he, he really start when he, he's kind of semi-retired now, but what he really did was um, emergency veterinary, okay. but with small animals. So when I, I spent a small amount of time in Houston and Gulf Coast Veterinary Clinic is there and 
I had a friend who had an open account because apparently people will fly their animals in from around the world for that place. And you just set your account limit. And I thought that was the craziest thing that you just say, here's the max I'll spend. Uh, you're an entomologist. What is entomology and why did you get into that? Entomology is the study of insects. And um, I got into it kind of by accident. I think like everybody gets into whatever their profession is. I um, started out school in science because my mother's a nurse and my dad's a vet. And so I didn't know there were, I really didn't understand that there were other careers other than science. So um, I took an undergraduate class and elective in entomology and I just got it. It just made sense. And I really liked it. And I thought, well, maybe I'll stick around and, and get a second degree in it. And to be very honest, I got really lucky that this position opened up at the time when I was finishing up my master's work. So I was very blessed to be able to come back home and be able to stay here. And we're going to talk a little bit about that because y'all have, y'all kind of get to do a lot of different things in your AgriLife, Texas A&M Agri Extension program, it seems like. We do. I, I always say I'm like a, I'm like a uh, uh, event planner for insect stuff because I get to, like with beekeeping, I, I thought that a lot of people wanted to learn about it. So I learned about it and then I started putting on classes. So we kind of, we listen, we do outreach education to the public and then whatever kind of industries that we support. Mine is the pest management, pest control industry. But um, we get to listen to the public and hear what they want to know about. So I talk to my friends and I, we have leadership advisory boards and then we base our classes on what people want us to talk about. And some of them are taught at A&M, I mean, at the Botanical Garden, some are taught at kind of facilities y'all have around town, it seems like. We, well, we only have our, just our extension office and we have a very small classroom, but we have a lot of wonderful partners like the Botanical Gardens and um, even A&M San Antonio and just other groups that, that we work with so we can, we can borrow their facilities or get it at a, a much cheaper uh, venue cost. Sure. I mean, the Botanical Garden one was fa fantastic. The classroom was great. The facilities were great. Um, and it's very close for me. It's, yeah, it's beautiful there. And they're working on a really big event center, like for giant weddings and like big for hundreds of people. So I'm excited to see when they finish that. But um, we're really lucky to work with them a lot on different programs and partner with them and, and be able to use the space because it, they're even on an ugly day. It's not an ugly day there. You can always, when you take a break, you can actually walk in the gardens. And I think that makes that makes anybody happy to see flowers. And it's always different. Something's always in bloom different than the last time you were there. Um, funny question, but do you have a favorite insect? Is there an insect that in your time you thought this one really fascinates me? I have um, different favorite insects based on what like different groups. So if you ask me what my favorite butterfly is, I like a zebra butterfly. Um, I like, I still get excited when I see praying mantises, even though they're kind of like a dime a dozen, but I get excited when I see them. Um, there's weird kind of unusual insects like snake flies that get me really excited. C kind of seeing one of them is like, I say it's akin to seeing a mountain lion in your backyard. It's just, they're okay. there, but they're just not commonly noticed. One day one landed on my shirt, my neighbor was over and I, he was like, what is your problem? Like, you don't understand how exciting this is to have it land on your body. <laughs> Do we have walking sticks here? Yeah, we have tons of walking sticks. Yeah, I haven't seen one. Um, okay, you did a lot of work and research. You mentioned it in the class, but I saw your CV or bio today on fire ants. What is it that drew you to, to researching and studying fire ants? Um, well, I got my master's in a lab. My advisor was a, is an urban entomologist, so that's really my background. But in that lab, you worked on ants, cockroaches, or termites. And I 
I don't know why I just decided to, there was a, there was really a project that was available on fire ants, but I wasn't really wanting to do any other insect necessarily. So I studied them. And then when I got into beekeeping, I realized I, I studied the wrong thing. Bees were much more interesting than fire ants, but they're both social insects and they're, um, I don't know. I just think they're really fascinating how they're like their own little community and they work with each other so much better than humans do. And there's just a lot of interesting things about them. Um, I ask everybody on the show and you're going to have a different sort of take on this since you're from here and been here so long. Do you have any favorite hidden gems in San Antonio kind of off the beaten path places that you should check out, but a lot of people don't know about? Oh gosh. Um, well, the botanical gardens, but everybody really knows about that. Um, Mexican Manhattan is a really good one downtown. If you're going downtown, if you're thinking of food, my favorite place to get Mexican food is uh, always La Fogata. I don't know if that one's hidden anymore, but it was at one point. (laughs) Um, Is Mexican Mexican Manhattan getting raised? I mean, they might be tearing down that whole block, I think. I think so. I know that they were having some, some issues and some problems. And then when COVID hit, I thought I saw some stuff on social media about, you know, uh, having a hard time making it. So I don't know where they stand right now, but if they are still around, they are, they are a great place to go there. To me, it's the best Mexican food in, you know, on the river walk. Well, it's a low bar for the river walk though. (laughs) That's true. Um, are you seeing any changes here locally in sort of our insect population? There's a lot of discussion on, on climate and weather and all those types of things. Is that relating to sort of changes in our insect populations around San Antonio? Are we having more pests, less pests? I mean, less insects generally? It kind of just depends on the, the specific weather that we're having. So some, what's weird about insects is that sometimes when you have very wet months, you would assume that you'd have more insects, but there are some species that don't do as well, like ground-dwelling species will have more fungal issues that kill off the eggs. So we just see, just pat, you know, Texas and, and San Antonio, you cannot ever predict the weather. So there's just no telling what's going to come out. It's hard to know what insect is going to be a big issue. Um, I don't think that we have seen populations decrease at all. I think habitat destruction plays a much greater role in that than um, climate probably. Um, But even just kind of worldwide, I know the Times came out with a thing about how all insects were going to go away at some point. And our Entomological Society of America has worked really hard on trying to combat that article because there were a lot of things that were incorrect about it. And it was very doomsday and, and not likely to happen in the next several generations. Okay. Um, I have, I really care that my yard has a lot of diversity and plants and all kinds of things. Anything normal backyard, you know, I'm a backyard beekeeper, I guess I could say, but anything just somebody with a backyard could do to increase sort of the diversity of, of the bugs that they see in their backyard. They could plant more flowers and they'll definitely see more pollinators of all different types. When you think of pollinators, you usually think bees and butterflies, but there's lots of wasps and which you may not, may or may not want. Um, lots of na- lots of native or solitary bees that will come to flowers, flies, beetles. There's a lot of other um, species that pollinate. So I would plant color and then um, just cut back on your pesticide use. So people that have those mosquito misters are knocking down a huge fauna of, of insects that are out there and oftentimes causing more issues because they're killing off a lot of their beneficials that kept the bad guys in check. So 
And, and I'm not, I'm absolutely not against the use of pesticides. I use them. We talk about, we teach how to use them properly. I'm just more of the mindset of, um, know who you're trying to kill. Don't just do it because you think you might have an issue. So use targeted, uh, use more of a targeted approach and know who you're killing and, um, do your best to do your, your research to figure out how to not harm the beneficial or neutral insects that are in your landscape. We have a ton of carpenter bees. I guess oh, yeah? passion vine, or I think is what it's called. Um, Are they carpenter or bumble? Bees? They're carpenter because they don't. They're just like that hard, shiny uh, yes. thorax, right? That's carpenter. The abdomen, yeah. So the uh, no joke. This is what we learned in school. The carpenter bee has a shiny hiney. Okay, well that's what I looked up because as a kid I saw we had uh, uh, trumpet vines and we had a ton of bumblebees, but I've never seen a bumblebee here in my backyard. But lots of carpenter. We, we have bumblebees. I had a lot of bumblebees last year. And then I haven't really, I've seen a fraction of what I saw last year. So, and I'm, and I don't think I've done anything different. And people say this all the time, you know, I had so much and now this year I don't see anything of, of whatever insect they're talking about. It's just nature. I mean, they move on and, and sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about beekeeping. You kind of, I saw another clip you did where you just sort of generally talked about it. What are the benefits of bees for, for all of us every day? Why, why are they important to our society? Well, we, we simply put, we wouldn't have food or we wouldn't have the amount of food that's available to us. We'd eat a lot of grains and corn and things like that. But even then we would have a decrease in pork and chicken and maybe not beef as much because they eat a lot of grains, but we wouldn't see a lot of meat on our tables either because those things eat fruit and vegetables also. Um, they are not even arguably, they are hands down the most important pollinator for agricultural crops. A lot of people will argue that they're really not that great for flowers and things, that that's what our native bees take care of. But 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 um, honeybees are super important agriculturally because they have massive numbers and they can pollinate these huge acres of, of land. And we wouldn't have, you know, the Poteet Strawberry Festival if we wouldn't have, if we didn't have honeybees. And European honeybees were introduced, but before that, we just didn't I guess, have kind of the yields of fruits and those types of things in America naturally. Right. And we also didn't have the same, the, the amount of people that we have today. Sure. So those native bees could handle native Americans. Um, we hear a lot about colony collapse and, and I think you sort of talked a second ago about some articles we, we, we read how alarmist they can be. Is colony collapse something we should be concerned about on a real long-term macro level, or is that kind of a natural thing that occurs, um, you know, every so many years or something? It's a little bit of both. We do see, we have in the past seen major declines in honeybee populations. Um, and our honeybee population decline, we've seen as a result of varroa mites. And they never, when those were introduced, we just never really got our populations up enough. But I think that there are so many people that are doing backyard beekeeping. If you, if you talk to people who are an older generation, if you talk to your grandparents, they'll all say, oh, my grandparents did beekeeping. So there was a time when everybody kept bees. And then we stopped doing that when we started being more um, urban and suburban. And now people are doing it again. So I think we're, we're helping the honeybee population and helping with colony collapse quite a bit. And then there's just other organizations that are teaching people about treating for mites and recognizing different diseases because it's Pests and diseases that cause the major decline. Colony collapse is not like one single thing. It's a multiple, a combination of eight different things, really, that you see these giant collapses in huge numbers of colonies. Like you and I won't see it, 
or be able to really diagnose it in, in, you know, 10 or less beehives. But if somebody has hundreds or thousands of hives and they lose 10%, that's a lot of hives. Then you can say something weird happened. Can mites just hit and, and knock them out that quick for they, somebody that has that many hives? They will. If you're not treating or if you're not monitoring for mites and making sure they're in the, the proper threshold, that they're below the mite load that you, that you want for that time of year, then your colonies will 100% die. Okay. Um, I didn't realize this till I took your class. There's lots of different um, species of honeybees. Um, and, and something I didn't realize was you sort of talked about that if you don't requeen, your hives will likely breed with a, what we used to call Africanized honeybees, which was all the fear whenever you and I were kids that people were dying by, by honeybees. And I have one of those hives now that is what you call hot. I mean, they just cover me and they're all trying to get me. Um, but what are some of the other, what are some of the other species of honeybees and what sort of the most common that beekeepers keep? Well, they're all the same species. They're all Apis mellifera, but then they're there are subspecies or called races, which are like a hybrid of multiple species or subspecies, sorry. So there's um, probably the most common one that people can get their hands on are Italian honeybees and they're very gentle and that's why most people like them. Um, Africanized honeybees are a hybrid of the Africanized bee. They bred with a lot of our European honeybees also. So it's like a, a muted version of what, what kind of flew in in the 90s. Um, but, um, I have hot hives too, and, and, and there's some benefits to having them. If you had a little small backyard and your neighbors were close by, you probably wouldn't want those mean bees, but I don't have to take care of them very much. They find food very well on their own. Their mite levels tend to be down pretty low because they're, they, they say they're more hygienic, meaning they take the mites off. Um, so there's benefits to having mean bees if you have the space and, and tolerance for them. Um, mine are great. They've, they I've gotten stung by five or six wasps in the last few years. I've never been stung by my bees, um, except for whenever I took my glove off when I shouldn't have. So, I mean, it was my fault, but um, whenever you mess with them, though, they, they do not like it. Let's talk about just generally getting started. I get a lot of questions from people that say, like, where would I even get started in that? And I'll tell you, the way I got started was I bought a nucleus hive from Gretchen and I had no idea what I was doing and I put them in a box in my backyard and I am sure that is not the right way, but three years later, they're a very, very vibrant um, and strong hive. So what's the best way to start instead of just throwing them in your backyard like I did? Um, well, I think you got lucky that, cause I kind of did the same thing and I wasn't that lucky and they died. Um, but uh, uh, I, I'd say- what you killed know, them? me. I'm sure I didn't feed them when I, I didn't recognize and I didn't know when they needed to be fed. I'm sure they had mites. I mean, just combination of, of things. It was very hot and dry that summer. And I know they didn't have a, a water source close by either. Um, but I would just say, tell people to um, take a class somewhere, take a class, do some research, read a book. There's lots of YouTube videos. I mean, just, just ask people, join your local beekeeping club, um, get information from other people that are beekeepers and learn from their mistakes so that you don't necessarily have to make them yourself. So uh, Texas A&M uh, AgriLife Extension puts on a class. How could people find out information about that? We do put on a class. There's lots of other people that put on a class too. So um, if you don't like what we say, then go to somebody else and keep learning from others. But we, um, I have actually done an online um, class that people can, can um, pay for and watch on their own. So it's not live, it's, it's uh, pre-done. And you can find that at agrilifelearn.com 
www.tamu.edu. And um, I'm hoping that in the springtime we can go back to doing face-to-face -face programs because those are much more enjoyable, at least for me. And I think they're more valuable as far as learning to be, to beekeep because you can touch and feel and we can do a field day so you can get the hands-on experience and everything. Um, so just, you know, you can, you can find that information on our website. I would just Google, honestly, Bear County AgriLife. I think our website is BX as in bear dash tech. I think it's bear. I'm sorry. B E X A R dash T X dot Tamu dot edu. That's what it is. Who other than uh, AgriLife puts on in like in-person classes in San Antonio? Well, in San Antonio proper, I'm not really sure, but uh, there might be some like at the Cibolo Nature Center in Bernie that they might put on. Um, I know that Gretchen has started doing their face-to-face -face classes again. They're just super duper limited sizes and they're in Seguin. Um, I did learn, she told me that they're not doing nukes anymore, so we can't get our nukes from them, but you can do. They're not? No, they're not. They're focusing on. I'm sorry. Did they say why? She wants to focus on, um, or they want to focus on honey, wax, um, and then just, they, it got too big. They had way too many hives, so they're trying to cut down. He is a, um, a, a pastor now, so I think that takes up a lot of his weekends getting ready yeah. for that, you know? Um, so they're just trying to. They're getting older and they want to make it a little smaller. Um, but Gretchen does classes. Bee Weaver in Navasota does classes. Um, I believe that um, uh, the Bee Place, which is in like Somerset area, I think does classes. And there's lots of others. That's just in, you know, in our kind of immediate area that I know. Of course, Navasota is not that close. But um, also the Alamo Area Beekeepers Association will do a field day in the spring, I believe. Um, and who knows if that's going to happen, but that's another uh, kind of class that you could attend. Okay. So somebody wants to get involved. Somebody bought me the beekeepers encyclopedia. Maybe it was kind of an old school, like big book. Um, there's books, there's classes, there's online videos. What, what kind of equipment do people need if they want to get involved? We'll talk about bees in a second because now I know, have no idea how to get them either. But what kind of equipment would people need for a base level starting of a backyard beehive? Um, well, you need a suit and you need gloves. And I would recommend a full suit until you're comfortable around your bees uh, before you start just using like a jacket or a veil. Um, and I would get a vented suit because it's hot and vented suits kind of give you some airflow. A little more expensive, but way worth it. And then you'll need a box to put your bees in. So you need um, uh, different sized boxes, usually a bottom and a top that goes on it. And when you order from like a supplier from a catalog, those usually come as kits. And then you'll need a smoker and a hive tool. And you can get other stuff too, but those are the minimum things. And some of the beekeeping locations, like beekeeping supply stores, you can buy everything in one, your suit and everything and a box and, and the hive tool and all of that in one package. You can. And I've seen even seen bee equipment now. You can order through Tractor Supply yeah. or you could order it um, on Amazon. So, I mean, there are so many different places to get equipment and stuff now than there was 12 years ago when I got started. I could only use, you know, look through a catalog and decide what I wanted. Okay, so now somebody's taking their class, they've got their equipment. Now where do we get bees if uh, Gretchen doesn't do it anymore? I honestly, I'm not really sure. I, I, so Gretchen has told me that they have some, some uh, local beekeepers around them that are gonna start uh, growing their apiaries and splitting their hives and they're um, 
he's, they're going to share that with me when they know. So I'm sure you could call them and ask, where can I get nukes? Um, I guess I'm just hoping that, you know, some people around us that do beekeeping will, you know, have five nukes to sell and we'll just, it'll kind of become like a, you know, a swap meet kind of a thing for bees. But you can get them from um, just other places in Texas. There's a lot of big commercial beekeepers, but you usually have to order like ten, a minimum of 10 nukes or something. So if and you what is a nuke for our listeners? A nuke is like a miniature hive. It's just, you know, if a normal hive is 10 frames or more, a nuke is five frames. So it's just a, a little baby hive with a queen, a little bit of honey and a little bit of pollen, a little bit of comb and a little bit of babies. And then they grow from there. And then you just take those frames out, you put them in your box and you've got a half filled out hive already. You do. Yeah. You just, um, you, you can know. also buy kind of a bag of bees too, right? Yeah. You can buy a, a, a package of bees, which is three pounds of bees, a queen, and that's it. She's just in this mesh. She's in a, it's like a, it's a, a wooden box, but it's got mesh sides on it. And then you just shake them out. Have you tried um, that? I have. They don't, um, your risk is a little bit higher with that because you don't have like the comb and stuff. So they have to be fed a whole lot, but it's a way cheaper way to, to start beekeeping if, if price is a concern. So you can get a nuke, which is kind of plug and play. You can get a bag of bees or you got renegade beekeepers out there who'll go find a swarm in a tree and shake it into a box. They will. Yeah. Uh, the guy who does our copy work, like a the, the printing copy scanning, he calls me and he had a swarm and he had a bee box. And I told him, well, they tell us just shake it into the box and he has a beehive now. And it worked for him. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tried to get a swarm once and all I can say is YouTube makes it look easier than it really is. I could not get them. I could not, I couldn't jerk the limb hard enough to have them all just fall in. So that was my big problem. And they were too high where I couldn't really scrape them from where they were hanging. So every time I shook the limb, they just went higher and higher and higher. And really all you need to do is get the queen to fall in and the rest follow is my understanding. Supposedly, yeah. And she's somewhere balled up in the middle. So supposedly if you shake it really hard, they just fall like, like they just don't even try to fly. And then if she's in there, they stay with her. So Somebody's got the education now, the classroom education. They got their equipment. They got their hives. Uh, let's talk about sort of day-to-day -day maintenance because, you know, Gretchen, I, I get all of their emails and there was an email about, you know, Mark likes to say there are beekeepers and beehavers. Mm -hmm. And I have listened to, and I don't know if it was you or somebody in the class who said, you know, I'm not the every week guy. And I think Mark Gretchen is kind of a every week or every other week you need to be in your hive, which is a lot of work just donning the equipment and getting it all together and being there. It's, it's quite a bit of work. I don't do it every week like he did. Uh, what do you think is recommended and what is sort of some of your rule of thumbs and how often you look at your hives? So I actually had this same conversation with Mary Reed, who's the chief apiary inspection service uh, or the chief inspector for the, for the Texas apiary inspection service. And she said, because Mark does say go in every week and there are lots of beekeepers that will check their bees like every other day. If you have the time to do it, that's great, but I don't. Um, but she actually said two weeks. She wouldn't recommend that you check them more often than every two weeks because you'll put more stress by opening the box up and kind of messing with them. So I've been trying to follow that rule, although I'm not that good at it. I like to, if I'm busy and I can't check them often, a minimum I try to check them every month. That way, if the queen dies, I, I don't have a dead colony. I have time to go find a new one. You know, the life cycle from egg to adult takes about a month. So I feel like I'm catching if things are weird. 
But then there's lots of people that like my hot hives, I don't often open those things, maybe, maybe twice a year because they're just so mean. So um, it just depends on the person. It's like, it's like having any other animal, you know, like some people play with their dogs, take them for walks multiple times a day. Others just have a dog in their house, you know, just what you have time for and what you do. So I got spoiled. I think my uncle, who I said is a renegade beekeeper, he told me, watch the entrance. If there's a lot of activity, you're probably good to go, you know, then just kind of every, every often as you want to go in there. Um, so I bought a new hive from Gretchen this fall and they were just never very active. Um, I guess I got them in maybe March and never very active, but that was kind of their thing. And then never very active, but, but consistent the whole time and then gone. And I got in and it was wax moths. Well, but they were probably gone and then the wax moths came in. Uh, okay. Because there was nothing to protect it. But I guess if the, if the colony was pretty weak, then the wax moths could come in too also. And then the bees just get irritated with trying to control them. And so then they fly off. Yeah, they never created comb past their nuke, um, what, it, what, it, what was in their nuke. So I guess they just never really set up shop. My, my worry was, can they go from the wood, the wax moths go from there to the hot hive and... They, they can if nobody's handling the, if no one's on that comb. So don't give them more space than they need. You know, if, if, if in the wind, if it gets cooler and um, they're not, you know, you say you have three boxes high and they're not in that third box then get rid of it and put it somewhere sealed up nice and tight so they don't move into it. But if they're active on all of the comb, then they, they'll, they'll take care of the wax moss for you. So I fed the, the frames in the, in the box to the chickens and they mm-hmm. had a field day with all the, the larva, I guess is what it was. Yes. I mean, it's pretty alarming. It's black web everywhere and all these worms. I mean, it was not, it was not a good day. For it's pretty that. gross. Yeah. yeah but the gross. chickens do love it. That's, that's what I do with mine. And, and funny enough, uh, that's what I saw uh, a post somewhere from Gretchen that they did the same thing with theirs. Okay. Well, they, they sent out an email right after that happened to my hive that said that this is a really bad year for wax moths. So oh, for whatever reason. Um, okay. So people have the understanding kind of, Treat them as you wish, but rule of thumb, according to apiary person, is two weeks, no more than every two weeks, but um, whatever's best for you. When people are looking at them, what are some of the things they're just generally trying to look at to make sure that they've got a healthy hive? And we don't need to get into the, you know, master's level classes, but what are some of the things that people should generally look for to make sure they've got a healthy hive? You may have frozen on me. All right, we had some technical problems and that was on our end. And and I was in the middle of asking you a question and the question at that time was, you know, there's some debate and people have different philosophies on how often to check on your hive, but just generally, what are people when they do check on their hive, what is it that they're generally looking for to make sure they have a healthy hive? You're always, you should always be looking to make sure that your co- your colony is what's called queen right, which means that your queen is there and laying eggs. And you may not always find the queen and I don't really spend a lot of time finding her. I think it's pretty cool if I do find her but I always just make sure I get into what we call a brood frame, which is brood is the all encompassing term for the babies, the eggs, the larva and the pupa. And I'm looking for very young larva or eggs if my eyes are really, really good, but you know, 
okay, I'm going to be blasphemy. I've got some things that he anything if they want to be a backyard beekeeper. Um, have some sort of a barrier assault yourself and the neighbors, the bees and neighbors. And I would say one real easy way if you if you bees, that's all the most people's head. That way it's like I'm gonna like bang or hit their wife and then and then once one stings, one is stings, they become all stings. Um and usually in the neighborhood hiding bees are gonna have to say they have some very great girl in the art. If I typically become the only garden or something, there's a bee right um is very good at all. I think we talked about sort of half the ways that maybe something, but also kind of come out like a straight right hand source. So if you watch them come and go through they don't just kind of go nilly, they sort of stick to those tracks. That, it's really cool. All colonies do that. If you go back and watch enough um, and be patient, you always take. So it's like, um, and, I, and I think it's directional, right? There's food, like 30 degrees all around. They still take the same direction. No, I'm sure someone studied that, but I don't know the answer to why they do it. And so I see the bees on my flowers and my plants and people say, oh, those are your bees. But I read somewhere that they'll kind of go in a couple miles in every direction. But yeah, the, they say, I've read a few different things. I've read that they will travel as far as four miles. Uh, radius around their house, which is a huge difference for a little tiny bee, a huge distance, I mean, for a little tiny bee. And then it seems like more of literature says up to two miles, but that's still a long distance yeah. to go from their house for something that's so small. That's, I mean, it's hard for a human to go two miles for, you know, walking for food. So imagine if you're a fraction of our size. And so I know that my bees know the water source. I've got a little koi pond and it's got a little trickly fountain, but it's got lots of low lying water and they all know it. And they just, I mean, there's usually 50 bees on that little fountain. Are they the same when it comes to food sources? Once they find a food source, they'll return day in and day out or is every day a new day for a bee? I think every day can be a new day. It depends on what food source options there are, but like people that that have a hummingbird feeders and have a problem with honeybees getting on it will tell you oh, they're coming back every single day. It's because it's the only food source that's there for them. So if there's an abundance of food, then they'll, they tend to choose different things, but they're, um, they're interesting because they actually have like recruiters in the, um, or they have little bees inside of the hive to determine what they need. So if they need more of nectar, then they're going to take food off of the bees coming back with nectar. And then that tells those bees to go back out and get more and they ignore the water bees and then vice versa when they decide they need more water or pollen or whatever food source they, they want. So um, they're, they're like, they have kind of brains inside of them, but like the colony as a whole is like its own little brain working. It's kind of neat. And so an important thing is that you have a nearby water source, but I learned when I first started this that bees may be the world's worst swimmers and anything over maybe an inch, they're just drowning in it. I have chicken waterers and I mean, there's no way to avoid it, but every time I've changed the chicken water, there's a bunch of dead bees in it. So in providing a water source, how do you want to provide a water source to provide for your backyard bees? You, you either make something super shallow that you constantly refill or um, you put something on top of it like straw or um, anything that floats so they can perch on it and then go pick up water because they will drown as opposed to wasps that can land on water because bees are so fuzzy so they become saturated and then they're too heavy to fly off and they fall in. So I've got a flax oh. around my patio too and I'll just spray that and if you pay attention a lot of them will come land on that. Yeah. And they like dirty water too. So people like to refill their water buckets and make it really clean, but they like it dirty because it has more minerals and taste and, you know, they like it better. Okay. And then that's another thing you talked about the hummingbird feeders, hummingbirds and bees kind of eat the same thing when you're feeding them. Uh, at some points of the year, you want to feed your bees, but at other points you don't feed them. What do you feed them? And when do you feed bees? You um, feed them sugar syrup or a, like a, it's a 
uh, eight pounds of sugar to uh, a gallon of water weight by weight. If you ask me, do I weigh it out? I don't, I just mix what I think sounds about right. Um, in the winter time, you feed them double that. So you make a really, really thick syrup, lots of calories for them. Um, and you feed them, I feed my bees, in other parts of the of Texas, they feed them at different times. Like in West Texas, it might be 12 months out of the year because it's so dry. In East Texas, they may never feed their bees because they're so lucky and they get really wet. But in the San Antonio or Central Texas area, I think we generally feed our bees in early uh, spring to get them enough food so that they can feed all the babies that they have, regardless of how much is blooming. I always feed my bees in the early spring. And then when we go into a nectar dearth, like when we're really dry in August, I'll feed them. Um, I'm not really feeding them right now because everything is blooming now that it rains. And then I'll feed them through the winter time too. It, it, I just kind of, I take uh, an assessment of who has how much honey capped inside of their hives and then go into the winter knowing who needs, who will need food and who can probably make it without it. And they sell a variety of different feeders, but this year I just took a cookie sheet and put it on top of the hive and filled that every day or two. And that was a lot easier than the ones that you put in the hive and all that. But there's a lot of different options to provide for the food. Yeah, there are lots of different options. I think where I am, because we have so much land around us, if I did um, those external feeders, I would feed every other bee but my own. So I like to feed inside. But if you are in an area where you're pretty sure the bees that are coming to it are your bees, then it's not, you know, that concerning. Okay, and I know you're not a lawyer, but are there any laws against people having a beehive in their backyard? There's not. There's a, there are, well, there are no laws within the city of San Antonio. There's no state of Texas law against beekeeping in your backyard. You might have something in your HOA where you can't. Um, there's also no county law, but if you live in another municipality, you might check with them. I do know that in the city, um, in San Antonio, that usually code compliance gets involved when they become a nuisance and they're stinging their neighbors. So Keep them gentle, queen them, feed them, and your neighbors usually don't even know they're there. Do you requeen your hives yearly? I try to. <clears throat> I try to requeen them at least every two years if I if I can't get queens. Um, I'm gonna requeen mine pretty soon because I'm getting to the end of where I can get queens, and it's a good time to requeen in the fall. Um, but I have some hives that are so mean that I can't requeen them, so I just let them be mean and just don't look at them. <laughs> Um, and, and another question I get oftentimes is, do I have an ag exemption? But if you live in the city, sort of tough luck on getting an ag exemption, right? Unless you're really lucky and you live inside the city and you have more than five acres. You can have an ag exemption with bees with five, between five and 20 acres. But if your homestead is on the land, then that usually takes up one acre. So you want essentially six acres, right? Um, and some people, I guess, might have that much inside the city. but um, uh, it, it takes about six years before you get the exemption, and um, it might be worth doing if you have that much land. Yeah, but who has five acres inside San Antonio? <laughs> Not many people. A small amount of people do. Or six acres, I guess, is what it is. Okay, and then the final thing is um, honey. Everybody wants to have bees for honey. Um, you know, what I nobody warned me is that in harvesting honey, you're going to have a lot of bees die in your honey. It's like they just bomb the honey and stick in it. Yeah, well, they're attracted to it. I mean, they're like, why are you taking this out of my house? I'm gonna bring that back. So they get all stuck in it, they get all over you. I, when I extract honey and I got a good amount of honey this year, it was my best year to get honey. I probably, we probably got 15 gallons of honey off. Oh. A combination of four different hives. A few of them we didn't pull honey from and, and you know, one we would just take one or two frames, but we got a lot of honey. And I learned that what I have to do is 
I have a, a special top that the bees can leave, but they can't come back in. So then they're off of my frames and I leave it there overnight. And then I take it into like, I have a barn that I take it into, or you would take it into your house. Cause if you try to extract out in the open, then every bee within like a four mile radius is going to try to eat that honey from you. And bite okay. you. So you took your, you took your frames out or your super, and then you had a special top that they could get off of, but not back. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I took them off and I was, I was extracting honey within 30 minutes of taking them off and it was, it was a mess. What, so did you just like drain it and let it go into a pan or something? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a, somebody gave me one of those because, you know, a lot of people want to get into it and then they realize I don't want to do this. So somebody just gifted me a giant separator, I guess is what it's called. And, uh, that whole thing was full of bees, but then I put them on the ground thinking, okay, they'll clean themselves off and fly off. Then my chickens started eating them. So it was just a, it was a thing, but we only got, I took enough that I, I think I took four frames and got one gallon. Um, but you know, it was a lot to learn. Yeah. That's a good amount. Was that your first year to do it? Yeah. Uh-huh. And well, then we, next year is going to be easier. Well, hopefully. <laughs> and we have a bunch of citrus where I live. So it had this really, it was the best honey I've ever tasted. And I don't just say that, but it had like a real peachy flavor to it, even though it wasn't peach. I mean, I've got oranges and Meyer lemons and limes and grapefruits, but uh, it had citrusy peachy flavor to it. And I thought it was great. And it was dark like molasses. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. So you've kind of given us all the resources. Uh, just generally, what is your favorite part of having bees? Why do you keep it up year to year? Cause it's not the easiest hobby to do. It is not the easiest ho hobby to be, to be honest. I keep so many bees because we have an ag exemption and I want to keep the ag exemption. Um, I like the honey. It's a fun, it's a, it's a fun way to like give gifts, you know, to teachers and, and friends and acquaintances and things. Um, but it's just kind of a cool hobby to have. No one else does it. I like keeping them because I like teaching people how to do it. Um, a lot of people have questions and I feel like I can be a resource for that. Um, but it's just interesting. I like just kind of sitting back and observing, observing and learning from them and seeing how they behave. Cause every colony, it's like, they all have a totally different attitude and like personality and it's just you learn something every time you're out there with them and one of my favorite parts of the class was there was a big uh portion with is his name david mm -hmm. okay so david's part of the ag extension program as well but he is a botanist maybe he's a horticulturalist horticulturalist and he did a he did a, a big section on kind of texas all-star plants that are friendly with the um the drought and water restrictions, as well as being friendly for pollinators. And I really enjoyed that. And I think it was maybe Rainbow Gardens is the one he said that they partner with and he does a radio show with them. And it was it Rainbow. He, well, he partners with all sorts of um, nurseries and growers, but I think it's Fanix that he does most of his stuff with. Okay. Well, we went out there and they had all these great plants that weren't expensive prices. And that was, that's sort of been part of the fun of having bees is trying to create a yard um, that, you know, whether it does or not make a difference in them because they go so far every day, it's sort of fun also growing that up in your yard. So I've enjoyed that. Yeah. It, having bees does make you a better gardener. It makes you uh, take more care of your plants and think about what you're planting too. You want, I will, I'm always looking for stuff that will bloom and not necessarily just be green. So it's in, in, on the flip side of that is my yard's a lot prettier than it used to be. So we have almond right now that has just gone crazy and they seem to love it. Oh my goodness. I went for a walk just a minute ago and like not even two hours ago. And we have some almond verbena or bee brush, or I've heard it called like uh, butterfly 
I don't know, it has a couple different names, but I call it almond verbena. And we have not a ton, but we have these little patches of it. And I walked past and the fragrance was so strong. I, I knew they were there, but I had to turn and stop. And when I did, it was, I had to take a video because it was covered in snout nose butterflies, which are out right now and yeah. bees. So they, you know, bees and butterflies can, can cohabitate and find food, but like, I mean, it was undulating. It was moving with cool. so, many, so many animals. It was insane. So Queen's crown is the only thing in our yard that kind of looks like it's alive. And I mean, the whole thing just buzzes all summer. Those little pink, um, it's like a terrible weedy vine that takes over anything, but it blooms year round and you just stand in the whole the whole the whole vine just buzzes so those kind of things are fun yeah uh yeah. molly thank you so much for doing this i mean it's a question i get a lot your class was very informative to me um and made me better at trying to keep bees alive even though i had a bad year but i'm going to keep it up so thank you so much i'm going to tell people i'm going to post how they can find out more about your classes um but thanks again and and maybe we'll get you back on to talk in the future as things change or maybe some more entomology related issues pop up yeah, sounds like fun. Thanks. All right, Molly, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right, bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Alamo Hour. You are all what make this city so great. We hope you join us next week. In the meantime, subscribe to our podcast. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash alamohour or our website, alamohour.com. Until next time, viva San Antonio. Viva San Antonio.